HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com All right, it's one o'clock on a Thursday and you're tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. We're bringing you the Farm Report live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street. And we are on the line today with Seth Jacobs. How are you, Seth? Hey, Aaron. Good to have you on the show today. Nice to be here. Nice to hear you. Yeah, you too. It's been a while. Um, yeah. So Seth uh, runs a farm up in Washington County, Slack Hollow Farm, uh, with his wife, uh, Martha Johnson, and their uh, grow crew. Seth, why don't you kind of set the scene a little bit for our listeners and tell us um, about about the farm, just like the kind of brief history, what kind of growing you guys are doing, and, and give us a general lay of the land. Yeah, well, we're, we're in Washington County, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the upstate geography, we're straight up, straight up the Hudson River, uh, between uh, Hudson, Hudson River and Vermont, and uh, a little bit little bit east of a little bit west of Rutland and uh, we have a small farm we grow vegetables on about 15 acres and we have a quarter acre of uh, of ground under plastic and in uh, high tunnels and that's where we're farming right now is under the under the high tunnels and selling fresh greens and and crops out of storage as well and uh, our markets are uh, direct retail at the Troy Farmers Market, and we wholesale to the Honest Weight Food Co-op in Albany, which is the biggest uh, biggest natural food store in Albany. So you guys are are growing year round, and a high tunnel is—I mean—that's essentially like a, a greenhouse. Or how is that different from a greenhouse? Yeah, high tunnel is—it's kind of a lo- lower tech. A green greenhouse tends to refer to something where the where there's a lot more, a lot of climate control. 
a lot of a lot of in, in energy inputs and so on. High tunnels just refer to basically ground that's covered in in pol in uh, in plastic. Okay. And uh, so it's a simpler a simpler approach, and we grow in the ground, not not on benches or anything. So it's a pretty it's pr- pretty much the natural world, just with the the one uh, the one factor where you have uh, you've excluded the uh, precipitation and you have some degree of warming from the sun. Yeah, I definitely remember sneaking in there a couple of afternoons when I was up in the area during these cold winter months and just kind of basking in the warm vegetal kind of. You know, it's like so in need of that this time of year. Oh, this winter, anybody who goes in there is uh, get, immediately gets a huge grin on their face. It's like blissed it's, uh, out, yeah. Yeah, it's a jungle in there right now. <laughs> so um, how long have you guys been farming? Uh, we bought the, this farm in 1983, the winter of 83. So it's coming up on 30 years. Wow. And yeah. you guys are a certified organic, right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we were, we were, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it, but we, people look now look at us and consider us pioneers. But uh, at the time, we were one of, you know, the, the, we, I think we came in the third or fourth year of the, of the certification program, and we were one of 30 or, you know, 30 or 40 farms, but there's hundreds of us now. So. Oh, wow. So you guys were in there, like, when they were essentially working out what it meant to be certified organic. Very much so, yeah. And has that has that process changed? I mean, do you is it is it like other certification processes where you you guys are kind of grandfathered in, or do you have to reapply on an annual basis? What does that look like? Oh no, no grandfathering in. No, nothing like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have a farmers union or anything like that. Uh, no, it's it has changed. Uh, we it started out being a where the the advocacy organization, which was NOFA New York, uh, uh, which is a kind of a pan New England organization as well, but the uh, the advocacy organization was also doing the certification, and uh, that has changed. And now the certification agency is a separate entity, and everything's under the federal jurisdiction now. About ten years ago, we went uh, it went federal. So, so that the Department of Agriculture oversees a, a nationwide uh, uh, standardized set of set of uh, certification. And was rules. that that yeah. change was prompted because you know because so much food was moving across state lines, or because uh, like in an effort to streamline it from state to state, or why did they make that change to a, a federal system? Well, it's you know it's kind of a truth in advertising kind of uh, kind of deal where it, it wasn't clear there, there were different agencies with different rules, different certifying groups had different rules, and it was and the the word organic could uh, could be co-opted, for, you know, in the marketplace pretty much any which way, any which way but loose, and so they uh, the idea was to to get a, a single standard for the term organic, and now they're uh, you can't. You cannot use. You cannot say that your products are organic unless you meet the USDA requirements. And is that a is that an annual inspection of your property, or how do, how do they kind of um, ensure that you're you're doing kind of what you say you're doing? Yeah, the inspection is a big is a big component. There's a lot of a lot of paper trails, a lot of that we have to that we have to keep up with, and the inspection is. Uh, I guess it's it's one. Of, it's probably fifty percent of the. Uh, where about fifty percent of the paperwork gets looked over, but uh, you know, we our food has to be you know has to be traceable from the field. Uh, 
and uh, yeah, a lot of re- lot of record keeping. I think record keeping is is a big part of it. And why uh, I know you know some farmers that we've talked to, um, especially kind of on the scale that you guys are producing, have you know mixed feelings about kind of going through the administrative hassle of of undergoing the certification process. What makes it worth it for you guys? Uh, a big part of it is that uh, at least a third of our marketing is wholesaling, and uh, when you're wholesaling, you don't have you don't have a personal relationship with your customers, and so you have to be able to simply you know flash flash your ID and and have and have people have confidence in you in the marketplace. So uh, wholesalers pretty much ha- who want to be organic pretty much have to be certified. Uh, a lot of farmers who just retail can develop a more uh, just a trusting face-to-face relationship with their customers, whether it's through CSA or right at a farmer's market. But when you're wholesaling, you have to be certified. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what what you guys are growing. Like what what does well um, in the winter months for you guys? Uh, in the winter, uh, under our in our high tunnels, we grow. Uh, a lot of greens. Our th- the products that we have for sale coming out of the high tunnels are uh, baby spinach, arugula, and two, a spicy mesclun and a mild mesclun. And those are all composed of, uh, well, spinach and arugula, obviously, or spinach and arugula, but the, the mixes are all a mix of Asian greens, cold-hardy Asian greens. And these are These are greens that can take some cold and can take low light levels. So there's no lettuce in any of the mixes, and uh, baby bok choy is kind of the base of both, both mixes. Uh, very, bok choy, it's only it's cut when it's quite small. And then there's, you know, tatsoy and, and mizuna and uh, some uh, various kinds of mustard, some frilly mustards and some red mustard. And, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, there's probably about 20 different, different kind of Asian greens that we use to make our mixes. Wow. Wow. Where, um, where are you guys getting your seed stock from? Our seeds come from, from Johnny's in Maine and from uh, high mowing seeds up in Vermont. Uh, one of the things uh, that's really pushing, our, that really drives where we source our seeds is the, are the certification standards, which mm-hmm. now require us to source organic seed wherever we can. So that's changed who we buy our seed from. And high mowing has, has kind of sprung up to meet the needs for, for uh, organic growers. They're, they specialize in organic seed. I think they're all organic. Oh, wow. So th- that's a new thing. Like, a, you know, you didn't have to grow from organic seed to be certified. The, the seed stock and the growing practices were separate, but now... Yeah. Well, the seed is a pretty, you know, as far as the, you know, the relative weight of, of the seed versus the product, you're looking at a ratio of maybe, you know, 1 to 10,000 or something. Uh, so you know, pretty much our whole farm's production can come in a can come in the spring in a uh, in a small cardboard box. So it it didn't you know it it the fact that the seed's not grown organically never 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 really bothered me. Mm-hmm. But but the idea is uh, is to support the or, you know to to create an organic industry. Right. It's fully integrated. And so in the long run, it's a good idea. In the short run, it seemed like a, a big pain in the neck and, a, and quite an expense. How, what, can you give us an idea of like the cost difference? 
Oh, it depends. It can be the same. It can vary anywhere from the same to 10 times as much. Okay. And has that changed at all, like what you guys have decided to grow based on the seed costs, or you pretty much just eat it? No, you just, yeah. uh, Your seed costs are fairly low, low percentage of your overhead. So we don't sweat that too much. Awesome. So can you take us through a little bit, kind of an overview of like a year in the life of a of a vegetable grower in in the northeast and how 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 you guys kind of plan out the seasons and and kind of what you're doing now and what you're looking forward to um coming up in the spring yeah right now uh there's a lot of paperwork uh ordering the seeds took a couple weeks uh because a small farm like ours where you have a large variety uh there's there must be 150 different kinds of seeds we order Wow. Is so it kind of like, it's a kind of like Christmas shopping? You know, you're like, get excited looking at the catalog. Like, Ooh, yeah, that one. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, sometimes it's Christmas shopping. <clears throat> sometimes it's a little frustrating because your favorite variety may, may not be available and you have to try, try new things. <clears throat> and of course, <clears throat> excuse me, to try new things can take a whole season. Right. To plant and try it out. And so you can, you know, if a favorite variety disappears, you can, you can lose, a, lose a season of production while you do different trials and, and find something new. But, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not bad. And then we're also going over our seeding charts. We have everything's on the computer, so uh, we tweak our seeding charts based on last year's production, how things went. And uh, very shortly we'll be firing up the propagation house and starting to, you know, mix soil and plant flats. What's a and, propagation um, house? That's a small it's a small greenhouse and it would be your our, on a farm like ours it's our highest highest te- you know high high tech greenhouse where the climate is most uh, most precisely controlled and that's that's where we start our plants. Okay. And and that's in most farms that's a separate that's a separate greenhouse from a production greenhouse where you, where you're growing things for for sale. Okay, and that's just because when when the at, at that stage in the plant's life they just need a little more TLC like a like a baby, right? I mean, yeah, and also in this New England climate, when you to get things going, you're tending to start things during the colder time of year. Okay. So you need you know you need a nice you need a nice warm place, a nice tight house with uh, and we we use heated benches and and. Uh, so the plants are growing on a warm bench, and then the, the air is also controlled. And uh, you have to have ventilation, so when the sun comes out, keep the house from getting too warm and keep it from getting too cold at night. So there's the prop house. And then usually around April 1st, in this, in this part of New England, is when the soil, the, first, the drier fields can be worked up. And we finish spreading any compost that we hadn't, haven't spread in the fall and ground ready. Uh, cleaning up anything that needs cleaning up uh, from the fall. And uh, all of our fields are seeded down to cover crops. And so we start either, either we start managing the cover crops, either mowing them or or tilling them in to get ready for planting. So the cover crops are crops that you planted in the fall or they're crops that you plant in the spring? Um, Yes to both. Okay. Uh, Okay. Uh, some of the cover crops are are sown simultaneously with the with the growth of you know, like they're sown under the the uh, a crop that's that's growing for market. Mm-hmm. And 
so, for example, under our winter squash, we sow red clover. And uh, when the squash is done, the red, the red clover is all shaded and, and very small while the, while the crop's growing. But as soon as the crop is done and cleared off and, uh, and the frost comes, then the clover starts getting all the sunlight and that field is nice and green in the spring. And then you, we can choose whether to till that right in or maybe just let the, cl- the clover grow until we need it. A lot, uh, our farm uses a lot of uh, succession plantings because one of our big crops is is greens, and which is a only the greens are only in the field for four weeks at a time, so a lot of that ground can grow clover until we until we need it. Right, um, Seth. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll sure. come, we'll come back and kind of uh, follow follow up. <laughs> okay. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 3.30 p.m., tune in to We Dig Plants with garden designers Carmen DeVito and Alice Marcus Krieg of Groundworks, Inc. The girls delve into our human relationship with plants as food, medicine, fodder, and a source of beauty and inspiration. They bring the culture to horticulture and discuss such topics as botany how-to, cultivation, horticultural history, garden design trends, and all things generally budding. Again, that's every Sunday at 3.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. All right, welcome back. You are turned in... (laughs) Turned into tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. We are on the line with Seth Jacobs of Slack Hollow Farm in Argyle, New York. Before the break, Seth was kind of taking us through a year in the life of a, a organic vegetable producer, and we were talking about cover crops. So let's pick up where we left off, Seth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cover the cover crops are used to build the soil uh, when you're not growing a crop. In between, in between, when you're using the ground for crops, or simultaneously, uh, oftentimes we have the cover crop in while the crop is growing. But uh, it, it, uh, it, it basically you, you're harvesting. You want to harvest sunlight and retain as many nutrients as you can when you're not using the ground. Uh, bare ground is a pretty unnatural thing, and you can harvest a lot of your fertility and a lot of the energy you need to keep to build your soil by by uh, by using cover crops. And that's kind of, I mean, that that model of farming, I mean, the idea that you can just plant the same thing on the, in, in the same spot year after year after year, the, I think that the idea that, like, soil is something that you need to take care of is, is like, not always totally clear. 
Um, so the cover crops and like the rotation of crops is essentially what you're doing to to make sure that the 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 production of your your food will stay consistent from year to year so that you're like can stay on the same land. I mean, it's just a, it's an, it's a way to kind of take care of the health of your farm overall or. Uh, Definitely. I I mean, the creed for uh, sustainable agriculture is a healthy soil will grow a healthy crop. And uh, uh, we don't, you know, organic farmers don't have access to the kind of really concentrated fertilizer in a bag that a conventional farmer does. And uh, the inputs, if you were to actually purchase all your fertility and all your organic matter for, uh, for organic farming, the cost would just be so high. So we do what is, uh, has been done for the majority of human history, which is try and grow as much of your fertility on site as you can. And uh, so we're not, this is nothing new. This is, uh, this is the way it's always been done. And how did you guys, I mean, do you or Martha come from a farming background? How did you kind of know what to do? Oh, we had no idea what to do. <laughs> we were, uh, we learned it all the hard way. And, I mean, you guys have been on the farm, you said, for almost 30 years. Has that been the full, like, the full, full-time full gig for both of you? The magn- mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. Awesome. So we learned, we learned a lot of lessons the hard way in the beginning, which, uh, it's not the is one way to go about it because when you do learn things the hard way, you really learn them. But it might have been smarter if had we worked on three or four farms for a few years before we started on our own. But uh, but that's all uh, that's all water under the bridge. Exactly. Okay. So so it's spring. So you've got some you you know cover crops growing. What what else is happening? Uh, well, the greenhouse is getting really full, and we get out the transplanter, which is a, a machine which. Uh, two people sit on, one person drives uh, behind the tractor, and the fields start filling up with transplants, and we start direct seeding some of the crops, uh, and things just things go into high gear, and we get into a, on our farm, we're in a cycle of uh, every week, we are seeding in the greenhouse, uh, transplanting from the greenhouse, and seeding in the fields. We do, we, our crops are pretty quick uh, quick succession crops, a lot of them, anywhere from four to eight weeks in the field. So we're planting every week and transplanting every week and harvesting every week. And uh, the emphasis on our, on our table at the farmer's market is to have the same crops in the spring and the summer and the fall. So you can get the same head of lettuce, the same bunch of beets, uh, and the same bunch of cilantro. For, for the full season, uh, so we have. But to do that, we have to plant every week in order to have fresh things to harvest every week. So uh, the summer is just a blur of uh, soil prep and planting and transplanting and harvesting. And you guys have some people. You have like a crew who comes, or, or what's the staffing look like? We have two people on all winter, helping us with the greenhouses, uh, and uh, four people all summer. Awesome. All right, so then in the fall, you know, starts to get cold, markets start slowing down. I mean, the, the Troy market goes year-round, right? Yep, most of the markets go year-round now. That's great. And you guys go to market year-round? Yep. And yep. you're doing wholesale year-round? Uh, to, when we have it, yeah. Okay. The wholesale tends to drop off after, after about December 1st. Uh, and then uh, we, we just are retailing the greens in the, in the winter. And we can retail a lot more greens in the winter than we can in the summer. And uh, 
because there's not there's not the oversupply. Okay, this is just like not as many people are growing them. So yeah, okay, fact, very very few are. Yeah, and, and so in the in the fall we have some big crops to get in, some things we do on a wholesale level, uh, winter squash, onions, and uh, and get all the crops uh, root cellared that we sell along with the greens in the in the winter, which are carrots, beets, uh, shallots, the the winter squash, and the onions. Can you talk a little bit about how? So, you know, you're saying root cellar, but where, I mean, where are the vegetables exactly? Like, what happens to them so that they can kind of stay in good condition throughout the winter yeah. months? Well, to, to keep them in good condition, they just need st- uh, still air uh, and, and humid, high humidity and as close to 32, but not below as possible. And we just use our, cool, our walk-in cooler, which is uh, a, tr- uh, a, a truck body that was a refrigeration unit on the back of a truck. And that sits on the ground, and we just put a little heater in it instead of the instead of running the cooling system as we do in the summer. Mm-hmm. So, on a little farm like ours, it's nice when things can serve two purposes, Absolutely. at least two purposes. Yeah, so, yeah. So our, our well, I call it the root cellar, but it actually sits above ground. But it does just great. Our carrots and beets store just fine. And then we have some warm storage in an insulated area for the drier things like the squash and onions. Okay. Um, Jack and I, the producer of the show, were talking a little bit about the last time I think it was up at your farm when uh, we did some carrot surfing. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your equipment needs and kind of what you guys have done to both design things for yourself and kind of how getting kind of the tools you need on the farm works? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the uh, carrot digger you're talking about, that, that is a single-purpose tool. It's just for digging roots, and, uh, and we, had that, we had that built. Uh, it's just a blade that, uh, at an angle that drags behind the tractor and kind of sends a shock wave through the soil and lifts everything up. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the way, the way we learned about equipment was by working with other farmers and visiting lots of other vegetable farms to see what's available. Uh, and there's, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of equipment out there for all scales of farming. And uh, most tools, you can buy them big or you can buy them small, the same tool depending on your scale. And uh, we, have a, you know, we have a designated cultivating tractor, but that's set up because we grow so many different crops. All our beds are set up in the same way. So the one tractor can cultivate all the different crops we grow. Okay. And so how do you, I mean, thinking about equipment needs, and then you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, compost and other fertilizer needs. Like how does, how does Slack Hollow fit into kind of the agriculture community up in Washington County? I mean, what, what role do you guys play as far as um, supporting kind of the, the infrastructure of the community or what do you kind of depend on other farms for? I mean, is it, what, what's the interplay look like? Well, we're we're really lucky, and one of the reasons we chose to farm in Washington County is there's a very it's a very strong farming community because the soils are so good throughout the county. There's a lot of farms around, and that means there's a lot of farm services. So we have a lot of lot of dealerships, a lot of repair people. So we have good support, and then there's a lot of livestock around here, many cows, many horses, and so we we use a lot of manure from cow and horse operations to uh, keep up the fertility of our of our ground. So we, we ship in a lot of cow manure and horse manure and compost it before we apply it to the soil. So uh, vegetables work very well when you're surrounded by livestock. Yeah, <laughs> kind of the classic mode. Yeah. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, having been on the same piece of land for for a couple of decades and, and farming? Like, have you noticed from a climate perspective um, any kind of shifts or anything over the last, you know, five years or so that seems different? I mean, it's a, it's a topic of conversation that people bring up, like the, the impact of agriculture on climate or the impact of climate on agriculture. And I'm just wondering from a on the ground perspective what, what you've been observing. Yeah. Well, fi- uh, five years is too short a time to see trends. Okay. Uh, and it's not cl- it's not immediately clear. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not in denial about about the uh, you know the measurements that are taken around the globe and what's going on. We've had a number of pretty easy winters, and frost dates are definitely getting pushed back in the spring. You know, earlier in the spring, last frost date and first frost date is moving has definitely moved back in the fall since we've been here. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, this winter is kicking everybody's butt up here. Yeah. Uh, it, it is cold. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, that's not, that doesn't point towards a global trend by, by any means. And if you talk to the old timers, they'll tell you, you know, it's just real hard to tell. The 60s were real hot and, you know, the, the 50s were really cold and, you know, the 70s were really wet and, and uh, and you know, uh, and so on, and so it's it's very hard at the local level to really to see a, a, a major trend. Uh, but I mean, you can't argue with the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, but it it's it's really hard. I mean, for me to say I see what's going on would be like you know, would be like Rush Limbaugh saying when it snows in D.C. that Al Gore's all wrong. You know, it, just, it wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> I would never compare you to Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> just for the record, just for the record. Um, what's going on with maple syrup up there? Do you guys do any tapping or? Um... Oh, we, we don't, but the, uh, pretty much everybody got their taps in. Uh, uh, out on, everybody's out on snowshoes tapping now because they want to be ready. Uh, it may have run one day so far. But we had one day in the 50s. But so far, it's been too cold. Uh, we, we're not getting the days above freezing yet. Okay. Uh, and that's one thing. That's what I mean. Usually, the sap's running by now. Right. That's but, what I thought. But you never know when the main part of the season's going to be. Whether it's going to sometimes it's in early February. Sometimes it doesn't come till March. And uh, it's definitely holding off this year. Awesome. Well, Seth, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day to to chat with us a little bit. Um, We would love, of course, to have you on the show again to talk a little bit more about what's going on when the season gets into swing. Um, If people want to learn more about your farm, they can check out your website, www.slackhollowfarm.com. And if they're interested in coming up to to visit, or are you looking to hire right now? Anything else like we should kind of put the word out for? Yeah, we're looking for another person for the summer, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And they can contact you through the website, right? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I will be in touch soon. I got to plan my maple syrup trip. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Erin. Thanks, Seth. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.
The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. Well, I think I think part of the sourcing process to me is the most exciting because you you know you rent a car and you drive through the south of France and you know you obviously have some appointments set up but you know some of the most exciting things happen when you're just kind of winging it and you meet a farmer at you know a wine fair and he's you know he says well come back to my come back to my estate and you're not quite sure where you're going you follow a guy in a Peugeot you know, up a rambling hill and all of a sudden you, you come across either a castle or a, like a shack in the woods and the guy's making wine out of a, the back of his, you know, house or he could be making wine out of a major estate. You know, looks are deceiving, but you, you want to you want to assume that someone with a very established chateau is making good wine. But nine times out of ten, the guy out of the garage who's like super passionate is making these better wines and they're maybe more, more rustic and less polished so to me like the restaurateur the sommelier this story resonates with them about the small farmer you know the guy who's making wine um on small quantities 80 cases 100 cases those are the things exciting to barterhouse that and hopefully the things exciting to our clients